Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, buying time to tackle MAID. The safety of Canadians must come first. The Trudeau Liberals push back the timeline for the expansion of medically assisted death before including the mentally ill. Coming up, we will speak with Justice Minister David Lametti, who made the announcement today. And a new survey backs up a trend we've been seeing for weeks. More Canadians now worried about the direction this country is taking and Conservatives building a lead in the polls as a result. How worried should the Prime Minister be? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Medical assistance in dying, otherwise known as MAID. It's been legal in this country since 2016, and while it was reserved for people whose deaths were, quote, reasonably foreseeable, the criteria has expanded. In fact, by next month, it would have been allowed on the grounds of mental disorder alone, but the federal government is introducing a bill to delay that. The proposed one-year expansion is necessary to ensure that we move forward on this sensitive and complex issue in a prudent and measured way. It will provide time to help provincial and territorial partners and the medical and nursing communities to prepare to deliver MAID in these circumstances. It will also allow the completion of in-depth studies of the risks and complexities associated with providing MAID to individuals whose sole underlying condition is mental illness. Now, without this bill, MAID would be available to the mentally ill by March the 17th. But if the bill passes, the inclusion for mental disorder would be delayed until March 17 of 2024. And to talk about the reasons for this, we're now joined by the Federal Justice Minister, David Lametti. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Now, there appears to be uh, several reasons for this delay, but I'm wondering if in any way it signals a hesitation about extending uh, made to include the mentally ill? No, it, it's not a hesitation to, to including. It is, it is more a recognition of the complexity of it um, and the, the fact that I think more people, uh, more, more experts, uh, more, more practitioners, uh, as well as Canadians generally, need to internalize uh, the standards that are going to be there. This is, this is incredibly complex. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't the case, let me underline that, this isn't the case of somebody who is depressed or has suicidal ideations uh, going to a doctor and saying, I want MAID. It, it is, uh, th those people should, must and should reach out for help because those kinds of conditions are eminently treatable and as a society we need to put more work into that. This is the case of long-standing uh, mental disorders uh, conditions of mental illness that are being treated by doctors where a person where a person after that uh, period of time with their doctor uh, doesn't want to continue and and we we have to be empathetic to that situation um, and and recognize that so it, it is a very rare set of cases we have a good experts report that is going to frame all of this but some provinces some experts some universities uh, uh, practitioners said they needed more time, we're giving them more time. Giving them more time. And, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about, about the criteria of this when it comes to mental disorders. But, you know, you, you did say uh, during the news conference today that you could have gone 
with the original deadline. And I appreciate you say some want more time, but if, if you could have gone with the original deadline, considering there is a demand for this, why delay it? Why not just go forward in six weeks' time? Well, it, it, it is a matter, I think, of making sure that as many people as possible can be ready, uh, that as many people as possible uh, are comfortable with the standards, particularly practitioners uh, who have to make uh, the diagnoses and understand them. Um, we had a pandemic, we had COVID, uh, that slowed the process down for a number of provinces. There's, there's a great deal of heightened rhetoric around this, uh, a great deal of it very much misleading. And so we're combating all of that. We think this is the prudent way to move forward. Uh, we need people to understand what is happening. We need people to understand what's not happening. And a prudent step-by-step -step approach is, is really the best way, we think, for everybody involved to move forward. Well, I, I want to pick up on, on the opposition that you're referencing there, because we, we, we did hear from, or at least see from Conservative MP Michael Cooper, uh, who went on social media today, uh, described the inclusion of, of mental disorders as a dangerous expansion of MAID and says it should just be scrapped altogether, the, this expansion of the definition of who, who can access it. How do you react to that? Well, I think I obviously disagree uh, with Mr. Cooper. I don't think, uh, first of all, I think that this is, this is an incremental expansion. It is not going to apply to that many cases. We're talking about the vast majority of made cases are still end of life. And a, smaller, a, small, a very small percentage of those cases are not end of life. And this is a small percentage of cases within that small percentage of cases. So we're not, we're not talking about, about that many people. It's very much incremental. Um, and what, what I think we need to realize is that mental illness is an illness, and people who are suffering from mental disorders are suffering from mental disorders. And if they have tried all available treatments with their doctor, um, they, like any other Canadian, have a right to ask for MAID. It is something that, that we recognize as a moral imperative. It's something that the, the courts have recognized. The ability to, to, to ask for MAID has been recognized in a general way in the Carter decision. And Canadians with mental illness are like any other Canadian. If they, if they are capable of making that decision and fall within the criteria, um, then we believe they should have access to it. Now, these are difficult decisions. These are heartbreaking decisions. I understand that. Uh, but this is, a, this is about autonomous choice and about securing the ability for people to make those autonomous choices within a safe and secure system. I'm wondering, Minister, how much of that evidence, though, is anecdotal versus actual statistical numbers? Because, you know, even before the law was passed in 2016, I think it's fair to say that for many, uh, the idea of MAID would only be applied to the terminally ill. Uh, but now, as you know, the fears that you, you said yourself are being expressed that it might be available to any adult who just has suicidal thoughts. What would you say uh, to that? Uh, are there numbers to back up what you're saying, or is this just anecdotal? Well, I think the, 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 sadly the anecdotes are coming from those critical uh, of what we're doing. First of all, let me underline again that somebody with suicidal thoughts is not eligible for MAID according to the criteria. Um, that is not the case. These are, these are serious and long-standing mental disorders, and, and the, the expert committee took great pains to underline that. So we really need, I really need to emphasize that, because that's one of the, the pieces of misinformation that's being peddled by the opposition here. Um, 
the statistical picture is getting better. In, in fact, part of Bill C-7, which were the 2021 reforms, was precisely to, to gather better data from the provinces, disaggregated data, who's seeking made, uh, how many times it's being administered, and to whom, under what circumstances. That picture is already better since the 7th of January, and we're going to continue to build that picture as we move forward. And this will be particularly helpful in those non-end-of-life cases. Again, they're the minority of cases, but, but it is important to have a better picture. And this will help us as we move forward. It, it, we're, basing, we're basing the decision on evidence and not anecdote, and I think it is fair to say that, that we are, are pushing this forward prudently at an appropriate pace uh, and, and I think for the benefit of Canadians. Now, you, you introduced the bill today. Again, if passed, it, it would delay uh, the deadline that you face. But, you know, the original deadline is still March 17th. Uh, will you be able to get your bill passed before that? Well, we think we can. We know we have the support of the NDP and the Bloc Québécois. Uh, the Conservative Party, when I appeared before them in committee, uh, grilled me rather vigorously, uh, asking me for an extension. I hope that they will now be true to their word and support this extension because it is precisely what they were asking for uh, at the end of 2022. Minister David Lametti, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Well, let's take a look now at some of the other stories making headlines today, beginning with the Bloc Québécois leader. He is demanding the removal of Canada's new special representative on combating Islamophobia. Amira El-Gawabe did apologize yesterday for past comments on Quebec's Bill 21, and she did meet with Yves-François Blanchet, but he says those talks did not convince him that she should remain in the role. There's been uh, fingers pointed at Quebec and at uh, Bill 21, and there's been uh, association of uh, between the Bill 21 and Islamophobia. All of these things put together, whatever her personal qualities might be, disqualify her for the function. This is a bad choice by the Prime Minister, who, making such a choice, uh, kind of uh, destroyed the possible credibility of the function. To Montreal now, where Quebec's public health director unveiled a new vaccine strategy today. While a booster shot is still available for anyone who wants one, officials in the province for the next few months will be prioritizing more vulnerable populations. The idea here today is really to focus on vaccination and to promote the vaccination again, to be careful for people that have not had vac uh, infected so far, and in particular for those that are uh, at risk that we have uh, designated few seconds ago. And still, for every citizen who wish to still, even though he, he had been infected so far, and he thinks that he would prefer to be vaccinated, it will be okay. It is going to be offered by the government in, in our center of vaccination, at least if the last dose was six months before. And in Ontario, the provincial government is expressing its full support for national health care data. It's a condition from the federal government in exchange for more health care dollars that aims to measure performance and fix gaps in patient care. Here now is Ontario's Health Minister, Sylvia Jones. 
You know, I have full confidence that Premier Ford is going to be able to articulate, as he has for many, many months, the need for Ontario to move from that 22 percent to 35 percent. We've always been very open with our federal partners that if they need the data to prove that the $14 billion that we've invested since 2018 is improving our system and making it better, we're all in. We are doing that with the help of Ontario Health, and we'll continue to make that information publicly available, but obviously available to the federal government as well. Ontario's pledge is part of a new provincial health plan and comes ahead of next week's First Minister's meeting in Ottawa on the future of health care funding. Well, after weeks of having his name thrown around by opposition MPs, Dominic Barton got his say on the Hill. Appearing before the Government Operations Committee yesterday to answer allegations, his relationship with the Prime Minister helped McKinsey & Company gain government contracts worth over $100 million. Barton was the Global Director for McKinsey for nine years before becoming Canada's Ambassador to China. I'm telling you about what my, I know what the relationship is with the Prime Minister, and I'm telling you that. It was a professional relationship, and I'm, I'm honestly quite shocked at what I'm reading about in the papers. It's just, it's incredible. Um, he must find it incredible, because uh, it's just simply not true. Um, it was a professional relationship. It was, there was respect. There were always people in the room, and that's what it was. I mean, I, I, I don't know what a defini I, I don't know what people's definition of that is. So that's the part that I, I find a little a little disappointing. Well, to discuss the impact of that testimony and other matters that have dominated this first week of Parliament for 2023, let's uh, reach out now to our political observers. Susan Smith is principal for the Blue Sky Strategy Group. Sean Murphy is a senior consultant with Ernst Cliff Strategies. And Peggy Nash is a former NDP member of Parliament and now senior advisor at Toronto Metropolitan University. Hello to the three of you. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. Uh, Susan, I'm going to get you to start us off here. You know, we were all watching Mr. Barton's testimony very closely yesterday. What did you make of it? Well, he's a thoughtful person, obviously. It's very clear that he's been not part of McKinsey uh, for more than three and a half years. He divested of his shares. He's not involved in the business operations at all. And it was also apparent that it was a bit of a witch hunt, I think. They're trying, instead of the committee doing good work so far and examining why the public service is reaching out for so many external consultant contracts, they seem to be zeroing in just on McKinsey, uh, they think because there's a political fire there, perhaps. I think the, the smart thing that Mr. Mc, Mr. Barton suggested, and others, I believe the NDP suggested, and Peggy, you'll probably talk about this, is... That, they, that the committee study the broader question of why the public service is reaching out so much for uh, external consultant help. Is it a lack of capacity? Is it speed? Um, was it COVID that caused so much of this to take place? And that, that to me was the big takeaway on the committee. Why isn't the committee doing a bit a bigger, broader job that's kind of more beneficial to Canadians on that front? Mm -hmm. Sean, I'll get you to pick it up because it, it has been, uh, to, to Susan's point, it has been Conservatives who've been using Mr. Barton's name, tying it to these government contracts. I'm wondering, from your vantage point, did his testimony diminish the case that's uh, being made, the point that's being made by Conservative politicians? I don't think it uh, diminishes the point at all. Um, I watched his testimony yesterday and I 
was struck that uh, you know somebody who has been lauded for uh, uh, having such a profound depth of knowledge and and such a stellar uh, contact list seemed to know nothing and uh, seemed to know no one uh, as this was all going on. But uh, you know it, his testimony yesterday he 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 tended to uh, plead ignorance on all these things, and I think that's up for the committee to decide whether they take him at his word on uh, on whether or not he knew what was going on. I think there are still uh, very important questions that remain on uh, why it is that the government would choose to do so much business over a hundred million dollars worth of business with a company that has been involved in so many of these scandals. Uh, you think of um, having to pay settlements for um, their role in advising Purdue Pharma on how much on how to turbocharge sales of OxyContin and turbocharge the opioid, opioid crisis. Um, on how uh, McKinsey had held corporate retreats next to a, uh, a concentration camp in China. So the questions remain, why would the government want to do so much business with a company like this? So what, whether, whatever you thought of Mr. Barton's testimony yesterday, it does not end with Mr. Barton. There are still plenty of questions and plenty for this committee to dig into. Uh, Peggy, what did you make of it? Well, I thought Dominic Barton was very skillful uh, at delivering the message that the buck didn't stop with him, that uh, even though when he was the head of this global corporation, he really didn't know in a deep way what was going on in many of the files, and that there was really nothing for the public or the committee to see in terms of personal relationships with the prime minister or the finance minister when it seemed to the public that, in fact, they they did have a closer relationship. But uh, be that as it may, I think there's a valid point, two valid points. One is around uh, why have so many so much contracting out in general and uh, Gore Jones, the NDP member of the committee, was was pushing for a broader examination. But I also have to agree, why McKinsey? They have such a bad reputation around the world, whether it's in France with the Macron government, the South African government, the Saudis, obviously around Purdue Pharma and the conflict of interest because they were also advising the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, so I think there there are serious questions about why the government went to McKinsey, and perhaps it's up to the government to answer that. But secondly, I think that I agree, the bigger question is why so much contracting out? Uh, you know, you certainly have less public scrutiny when private contractors are performing the work. Was that part of the reason? Will we know what advice was being specifically given? And was that advice taken? I think these are questions that really only the government will be able to answer. Well, that's interesting. And, and Susan, I'll bring you back in here because we did hear from a Carlson University prof, Amanda Clark, uh, on Monday. And, and she was uh, describing the whole McKinsey affair as being a, a distraction to the larger issue that there are so many public contracts, pri public contracts going out to private uh, consultants. I'm wondering, given this controversy, do you think it's going to change the way government does business going forward? Michael, it depends what the outcome is. It depends if there's a proper, uh, if the committee does a proper study, and instead of just going after one company, that they take a bigger step back, they act more like adults, and look at the over -contracting, overall contracting issue. Try to understand where the gaps are. 
Uh, PSPC, Public Works and, and uh, Procurement Canada, I'll get the acronym wrong at the moment, has a very rigorous process for any company that's trying to do work with government. Uh, I think there'll probably be some scrutiny on that process, and I think they'll probably find that uh, it is rigorous and um, that companies are chosen, hopefully for best value, but also for best advice that they're able to give. We have a talented public service, but it does not do everything. It does not have the latest insight, intel, uh, or um, action plan necessarily on what the best way is to do stuff. So I think it's smart to a certain extent and appropriately for governments to reach out for insights uh, and advice. But are they doing it the right way? Are they spending too much or not enough money on that? That is something the committee could look at if it was doing its job properly. And maybe it's something the Auditor General eventually looks at as well. Sean, what do you think? Do you think uh, business w will change going forward? <clears throat> well, I'd say, look, there clearly there's plenty of knowledge and expertise that exists outside the public service. So it's not shocking that the government would tap into that when they need to. Um, but the question of whether or not they, the question of going forward doing the analysis of the value for money that the government is getting out of all of these different uh, consultants that they're hiring, um, uh, that's fair enough that, that that investigation ought to happen and that, that uh, study ought to continue. But it's not just a question of value, it's a question of values, plural, and whether or not the government ought to be uh, tying itself or doing so much business with a company like McKinsey, which has had so much, uh, so many of these uh, scandals that, that Peggy uh, listed off, um, I don't recall ever hearing about Deloitte uh, having a corporate retreat next to a, a, a concentration camp, and uh, I don't think Price Price Waterhouse Cooper has uh, had the same uh, issues with the, the way they've turbo the way McKinsey helped to turbocharge the opioid crisis. So it is a question of value for dollars, sure, for uh, the Canadian taxpayer, but it's also a question of values and whether we want to be associating uh, the brand of Canada with the brand of McKinsey. Yeah, and, and I think that is where we're going to see the, the arguments go next. But, you know, Peggy, you're talking about transparency, but and uh, Susan was talking about the public service. And when we were listening to, to Dominic Barton yesterday, he, he said part of the reason why governments turn to consultants is because the public servant, uh, public service rather does not have the capacity or the knowledge base to address certain issues. And he says if things are to change, then the federal government really has to build capacity within the civil service. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, there probably are situations where the public service may not have uh, the expertise, whether it's technical expertise or whatever. But, you know, we've heard from public servants who said that some of the advice that these public consultants were giving was so uh, anodyne, so, so uh, basic that uh, it really was of no value. And I think sometimes there is a mentality in governments, more conservative-leaning governments, a small-c conservative governments, that the private sector always does it better, that public servants are too slow or they don't have the expertise. And, and I challenge that. I think we have an excellent public service. My experience with them as a parliamentarian was that they, they were impressive. And uh, if they're saying they can do the job, I don't know why we have not used them more. France, when they conducted a similar inquiry after a large scandal, 
found that they were way, way overusing consultants. And it was just the default by many French politicians. I think we need to value our public service, occasionally supplement them uh, where there are certain additions needed. But we have to be very careful about value for money, the cost of these things, uh, and the public accountability. If we can't know how our public dollars are being spent, what advice is being given, what advice is being taken, uh, then I think there there is a real smokescreen and a danger to using a greater number of public consultants. Okay. Well, listen, uh, of course, more to talk about this uh, subject as uh, the weeks go on. But I want to turn now to, to the latest polling because we, we just got a new poll uh, from Abacus this week. It says Conservatives have opened up a, an eight-point lead over the Liberals and that more than 70% of Canadians don't feel as if Liberals are doing enough uh, to, to tackle the cost of living, housing, health care. Uh, the government has been talking about what they're doing to help. Uh, Susan, how concerning are these numbers, because, you know, this is abacus, but it's backed up by, by other polls in recent weeks. How concerning is it for the Liberals if the majority of Canadians don't think what Liberals are doing is enough? Well, I think, as we all know, Michael, polls go up and down uh, over the course of a government. Uh, some parties up, some parties down, and that changes around. And we've seen that throughout the pandemic. We, you know, we, we didn't even see Minister, Mr. Polyev get a bump immediately after he was elected. Canadians are having a tough time right now. There's no question. They're watching interest rates go up. That's the Bank of Canada policy. Unlike what Mr. Polyev thinks that it's a political decision, it's not. Um, there are challenges with affordability in terms of supply and demand, food prices, labor shortages. All of these things are impacting people. So people are frustrated and they look at who's who's got their hands on the levers uh, at, at, the, at the moment of the day when the poll is asked. But we're a long way from an election. I think the Liberals are paying very close attention to that. They're listening to their MPs. They're listening to what people have at the door. They're putting in place programs like dental care, like child care, like rental rebates. They are listening to people from an affordability perspective. The in inflation is cooling down. I talked to friends in Argentina last week, 95% level of inflation in Argentina. It doesn't take away from the tough challenges that Canadians are having here. But I think over time, uh, we're a long way away from election, as I said. Maybe at the moment they think the Conservatives are a better option. Um, it's not something I personally would be worried about at the moment. I do think the Liberals keep an eye on it and they make sure that, that what they're doing is reflective of what Canadians are asking them to do. And I think they're doing it. Sean? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I agree with Susan uh, that we are a long way away from an election. I don't see the... Uh, uh, the NDP pulling the plug on this government anytime soon. And I, I suspect that when we do go to an election, it'll be the government pulling the plug on themselves. And that'll be when uh, the poll numbers are a lot better for them. So it won't be anytime soon. Uh, I don't think that the, the, I think the Conservatives will be happy with this number, but they will not let rest on their laurels. Uh, they will double down and continue to speak to Canadians where they are. Uh, about these uh, issues of affordability, uh, about the healthcare issues that are happening across the country, uh, and about the uh, challenges in uh, service delivery from the federal government. And so all these things that have piled up over the years and throughout COVID, post-COVID, all these things have been happening under the watch of the current government. So it's no surprise that while Canadians are struggling through all these things, that uh, it's reflected in the polling uh, and is that the people who are in charge whether it's whether uh, fair or not, they're the ones who are going to wear all this. So uh, 
in, in any case, I, I agree with Susan. The election isn't anytime soon. So uh, there's while these these horse races happen uh, between elections and these pollings, uh, the polling is is interesting to keep track of. Uh, I don't think it's uh, indicative of any uh, future government yet. Uh, Peggy, to you. Yes, I agree that the polling is not predictive. I think it indicates, as as has been said, that Canadians are going through a very tough time. Uh, somebody with uh, uh, a mortgage that's rising, the, the price of rent, food, we know all of the the costs are going up. People are, are really feeling squeezed right now. I mean, I, I have to say, I see it on uh, city streets, um, the amount of poverty and, and real concern. Um, I, I would say that I think the polling numbers are good for New Democrats in the sense that if the Liberals are not feeling really confident of a better outcome, they are less likely to pull the plug on themselves, as Sean said, and uh, the NDP would know that they are more likely to be able to achieve more with a liberal minority government in the current circumstances than they might be risking uh, coming back to a majority election, whatever party. So I think we're not into an election anytime soon. And these numbers indicate there's going to be a lot of horse trading still to come. And I think for Pierre Polyev, he's got work to do on his personal image, but in terms of his messages around the economy, he he has some foresight predicting that this would be a, a difficult time for Canadians, and I think he has played that hand well. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, listen uh, to the three of you. I'm going to end it there for this week. I was hoping to talk about health care given the First Minister's meeting on Tuesday, but of course we have time to do that ne next week. But for now, uh, Susan, Sean, Peggy, really appreciate the time. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And that is our program for this Thursday. I'm Michael Sarabio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for joining us. We'll see you again tomorrow.